If you ask someone, what do you think of Jesus? I think you're asking them a good question. If you ask someone, what do you think of Jesus? You're you're asking them a good question. Uh, It's a good question because most people have an opinion. And most people like to voice their opinions. At the end of the sermon today, I'm going to encourage you to ask people that very question. Thoughtfully, prayerfully, yes. What do you think of Jesus? It's a good question. It's a good question also because it's a Christ-like question. Jesus, we're going to see in the passage before us in a moment, Jesus himself said, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do other people say about me? In essence, he's saying, what do you think of me? What do you think of Jesus? So it's a good question on that level too. Furthermore, it's a good question because if you ask someone that question, you're going to have a better idea about what they believe. You're going to have a better idea about what they know and maybe what they don't know and maybe have an opportunity to talk to them about who Jesus really is. It'll give you an opportunity maybe to to love them enough to tell them about who, who Christ is. It's a great question also because there really is a right answer. (laughs) It's a great question because you can hear from someone and you might be able to help them with the right understanding, the, the true understanding. And you say, how could we possibly have a true understanding? There are so many different opinions and there are so many different perspectives and so many people say, well, I feel Jesus is this and I think Jesus is that. How could there possibly be a right answer? Well, there could be a right answer because by God's grace, we have multiple complementary historic accounts that make it clear to us who Jesus is. They're called the Gospels. There really is a way to know who Jesus is and to know who Jesus isn't and to be able to know who Jesus is. It's so interesting that in uh, the Gospel according to Luke, which is where we're going to be learning from this morning. In the Gospel according to Luke, in the first chapter, Luke the physician who's writing talks about his orderly, historic account. And for his reader, he says, that he's writing this orderly, historic account so that his reader can have certainty about who Jesus is. Amazing. And by extension, for our purposes, we can have certainty about who Jesus is. Because we have multiple, complementary, historic accounts so that we can know who He is. It's amazing. And once again, I'm going to encourage you at the end to ask people that question. Who do you think Jesus is? It's a Christ-like question. It's a way for you to show love. It's a way for you to help people. And people don't mind hearing questions oftentimes when they can have opportunity to share their opinion. And then you can help them. So with that said, we're going to look at Luke 9. So as we look at Luke 9 this morning, first 22 verses, there's a bunch of verses to go through. We'll go pretty quickly. Luke 9, 1 to 22, and we're going to be able to make observations about who the Jesus of history is, who the true Jesus is. We can draw conclusions, and and I'm going to offer a handful of conclusions today. Surely there are more of them, uh, but if you're a note taker, you'll be able to write down five of these observations or five of these conclusions about who Jesus is so that it can help you help other people. It can help you first, and then you can help other people to be able to answer the question in a truthful way. 
Who is Jesus? Luke 9, 1 to 22 really helps us to answer that question. So let's look at this first description. If you're taking notes, it's uh, what I wrote down was Jesus is uniquely powerful and authoritative. It's about his power and authority. We're going to learn that he's uniquely powerful and authoritative. First six verses, let's go ahead and read those. It says in verse 1 of Luke 9, And he, being Jesus, called the twelve together, the twelve disciples, that would be his followers, the inner circle, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, I tried to put some emphasis on that statement in verse 1. Gave them power to heal, or gave them power and authority over all demons. I put emphasis there because that's what Jesus has been doing. If we're to go back and read through the first eight chapters, we see Jesus has shown himself to be uniquely powerful because he can do what others can't do. Unique authority because he has authority that other people don't have. He can cast out demons. Who can do that? He's shown time and time again he can do that. He can heal people. He can raise the dead. Who can do that? Only Jesus can do that. And that's on purpose. We've been seeing he's unique so that when he claims to be the ultimate savior, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate king, he's got credibility. He's been demonstrating his power and his authority. And week in and week out, we go, wow, wow. He doesn't just make empty claims. He shows his power and he shows his authority. And just when you think maybe it couldn't get any better, you couldn't see any more power and any more authority, you see it. Because now, not only does he have the power to do powerful things and authority to do uh, authoritative things like nobody else, he has the power to give other people the power and to give other people the authority. And you say, whoa, this is extraordinary. This is amazing. You must be pretty powerful to be able to do that. Absolutely. You must have a kind of authority that nobody else has to be able to do that. And that's, that's the right conclusion. He's sending them out to do the very things that only he could do. Now, I do want you to also notice once again in verse 2 where it says he sends them out to proclaim or to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And again, that's what he did. That's what he has been doing. He's been uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God because he's calling himself the king. And associated in the Old Testament where you have the promises of a coming ultimate king, a coming ultimate deliverer, an everlasting king, an everlasting deliverer, the one who will bring peace on earth, the one who will bring um, perfect restoration, including health. In the Old Testament, that's the Messiah. In the New Testament, we use the word Christ. He's claiming to be that one, and now he's sending his disciples out, telling them to preach the same message about him. Now, in case you're just joining us or you need a little refresher, I want you to go back, if you would, to the beginning of Jesus' ministry so you can see how this is the exact same thing. And that would be in Luke chapter 4. So if you quickly turn to Luke chapter 4, let's see that when Jesus launches his public ministry, if you will, this is the very same thing Jesus is doing. And that's because if Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, he needs to be doing these things. He needs to show that he has the power to restore health, 
because that's what the promised Messiah is going to do. He has the power to bring peace and reconciliation and freedom from oppression, whether it's demonic or otherwise. And if you go back to Luke chapter 4, uh, where Jesus is in Nazareth, um, kicking things off, um, he's going to stand up in the synagogue and he's going to read from Isaiah 61, Isaiah the prophet. And if you're a Jew living in the first century, you know Isaiah 61 like Christians know John 3.16. It's, it's, it's the text, the, the messianic text, the waiting for text. Oh, if only one day the ultimate deliverer could come. And Jesus unrolls the scroll to Isaiah 61. Let's go ahead and read what it says in verse 17 of Luke 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's like new creation talk, just like old creation, first creation. We're going to have new creation where, where we had the uh, creation at the beginning and then it gets broken, if you will, with the fall. We're going to have it restored. So it's similar. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed. That's a, that's a Messiah King word. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty or to free those who are oppressed demonically or otherwise. Then verse 19 says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That would be to proclaim forgiveness, freedom, rest. And when Jesus reads that, he tells them. It's been fulfilled in their hearing. He's saying it's him. And the Jewish people know exactly what he's saying because following that, we're going to stop reading for now and go back to Luke 9, they want to kill him because they don't think he really is that one. The reason I had you go there is we need to understand that the Old Testament promised ultimate deliverance from oppression, governmental or otherwise. It promises ultimate deliverance even physically because we live in a broken world with broken bodies. And one day, if Messiah comes, the anointed one, the Christ, the ultimate king, if he comes, he's going to bring in the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. And if you're a citizen of the everlasting kingdom, that means you're going to last <laughs> And he's the one we're waiting for. The one who will come and undo the doings of Adam. So it's a key text. It's a super important text. And Jesus has been preaching this kingdom message. And he's been acting like the one who is promised to be the king. He's been substantiating. And Luke is unfolding this for us in his historical description. And now in our passage, Jesus gives the power to do kingdom things to his disciples. And it's meant to really get our attention. We're not trusting in a mere prophet if we're trusting in Jesus. We're trusting in the one. The one. Kingdom activity surrounds the king and now the king's disciples have kingdom activities surrounding them. Now I should say, it's not going to last. The healings aren't going to last. These people are going to die. And we're going to see this morning, there's a reason why. Toward the end of our study, 
we're going to see there's a reason why these things don't last. But they do need to happen so that we can see that Jesus really is the one and He's not just in some back room in, in front of a few of His fans uh, making big claims that He can't back up. He's really doing this stuff. And His disciples are really doing these things. But something else needs to happen before these things can last forever. And we're going to see that, but we're going to see that later. Then let's move on to verse 3. Enough of that for now. Then to verse 3, he's going to send out the 12. He gives us some instructions. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. In other words, don't go home and pack your bags. Just go as you are right now. Why does he say this? I don't know for sure. But one thing is for sure is that it will allow them to trust Him. To trust Him more. Makes sense. He's going he's gonna to send them out to proclaim the truth about Messiah. Messiah is here. The King is here. You need to trust in Him. Well, if they're going to go out and preach about trust, apparently they could maybe learn a thing or two along the way about what it means to trust in Him. I take it that that's why He tells them to take nothing with you. Uh, and He'll do this time and time again. Pushing them. Pushing them. Oh, you trust me? I'm going to push you to trust me more. Pushing them. And so it seems like that's probably why he's doing this. Then verse 5 says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Pretty harsh, huh? Pretty harsh. It tells us something about Jesus. He is authoritative. He is the king. Uh, It tells us that that, that you you, you don't um, sit on the fence of indifference. Do you, do you embrace him as the king or do you not embrace him as the king? It's pretty clear. It also tells us something about these disciples, later to be called apostles. It tells us something about apostolic authority. They are rep- official representatives of Jesus. And they proclaim his message, yes. They don't have any inherent authority, but when people reject the message of Jesus as the Messiah, they can draw the conclusion, you know what, they're against Jesus and it's not going to end well for them. Let's now move on to verse 6 where it says, And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. That is the good news about the kingdom and the king and the Messiah and all the things that he would do and healing everywhere. So it's just saying what verse 2 said just in a little bit different way. They're preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And if there's going to be a king, he's going to bring restoration because that's what the king does as his promise in Isaiah 61. And so they're proclaiming this everywhere. They're proclaiming good news, the ultimate good news. Now let's move to a second description of Jesus that we're going to be able to glean from our passage. Jesus is historic. Jesus is historic. And we're going to see this in verses 7 to 9. Now I suppose I could not give you this particular point, but I take every opportunity I can to point out the the historic nature of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear so such things? And he sought to see him. 
And you say, how did you get that Jesus is historic from that? Well, we could have just read it and made some interesting observations. But I take every opportunity I can to point to the historicity of Jesus. You know, when um, quote-unquote Bible experts uh, in the media talk about the, the historical Jesus, um, in the academy, that's a, that's a buzz phrase for the Jesus not of the Bible, the non-miraculous Jesus. That's the historical Jesus. Well, I've about had it up to here with them taking good titles. <laughs> Let's reclaim that title. The historic Jesus is the Jesus that we're reading about here. Jesus is as historic as Herod is. Jesus is as historic as Elijah the historic prophet is. Jesus is as historic as John the headless Baptist is. Jesus is not a phantom. He's not the Messiah of Gnosticism that's not really real. Jesus is the real Jesus who walked on planet Earth, who was as real as Herod the Tetrarch, a historical person. You know why this is such a big deal? Practically, because Pat Abendroth is historic. And so are you. Despite what your family might say, you're a real person. <laughs> We're real people. Physical, spiritual beings who suffer and are broken and will one day die. And guess what? We need a historic Savior who will bodily rise from the dead because our bodies are broken and we need new ones. And so it's not just an academic kind of debate. We want a Messiah who's the Messiah of Isaiah 61. We want a Messiah who's the Isaiah of the historic gospel accounts. We want the real historic Jesus, the Jesus we're reading about here before us in our very eyes. By the way, before we move on, Herod does meet Jesus. Luke chapter 23 describes when he meets Jesus, and it's not an altogether good account. But uh, do know we're talking about the Jesus of history when we're talking about this Jesus. A third description of Jesus that's true, that we can uh, conclude about, we can embrace from the historical record, Jesus is the provider. Jesus is the provider. You could say he's gracious, kind, merciful. All of the things would be true. But in verses 10 to 17, I'm just going to use one title, and that's Jesus is Provider. Look what it says in verse 10 with me, if you would. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he spoke to them and withdrew apart to the town called Bethsaida. When the crowds, uh, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. 
Verse 14 says, For there were about 5,000 men. You have a study Bible that probably makes a note saying something like, and that would just be the men, so who knows how many women were with them, how many children were with them. So it's the feeding of the thousands, sometimes Bible scholars say, not the 5,000, because it's more than 5,000. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set be, to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus is the provider. The reason I wanted to summarize it in using that conclusion about Jesus is because of the obvious. Jesus provides. <laughs> Hello, kind of easy. Um, But throughout the Bible, ultimately, the one who provides for the people of God, especially when they're in dire need, even of food, it's God who provides. Jesus is showing that He is extraordinary when it comes to comparing with anyone else. Some people uh, say, well, this is where Jesus is like Moses. He's the better Moses. And you know, in the wilderness, the people needed the food. The people of God needed to be fed. And they gathered there and they didn't have any. And Moses provided the food. Well, I don't mind the parallel, but Moses doesn't provide the food. Actually, God provides the food, right? And so, sure, I don't mind starting down that road, but I'm going to eventually say, yeah, this is amazing, all right, because if we're going to make the parallel between the wilderness wanderings, and this is sort of a picture of that, go for it. Jesus is not the Moses here. Jesus is the provider, and the provider is actually God. Maybe also what's in view here, I'm not sure, but maybe what's in view here also is this, again, this kingdom foretaste, this kingdom kind of experience where everyone's satisfied. There are no wants. In fact, there's an abundance. I'm prone to thinking maybe, maybe that's what's in view here. As the eternal, everlasting, perfect kingdom will be, when you're around the king, even during his first coming, your needs are met. You're taken care of. You, you, you have your needs met even in abundance. Jesus stands out as extraordinary. Before moving forward, just as a, as a little aside, uh, this won't be the last time where Jesus corrects the instincts of his followers. By instinct, they were compassionate and gracious. You know, well, we've got to do something with these people here, Jesus. We've got to make sure their needs are met, so we're going to send them away. Or we need to cater in. You know, we need some money. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to do it that way. There's something to be learned there. Uh, instincts. Even good instincts aren't always necessarily the way the Lord is going to direct. And he doesn't do that here. But make no mistake about it. If there's one thing to be seen, Jesus provides. And if there's any kind of Old Testament parallel, that's the parallel to the divine one. Oh, and by the way, even if there isn't a parallel, how do you get 
enough food for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people out of next to nothing. Well, Jesus does it. And by the way, I don't think it's like um, some old um, anti-supernaturalist commentators. Well, to see the true miracle here is not that Jesus is actually supernatural. The true miracle is that Jesus taught about giving. And so all the people actually had food hidden. They were so stingy. And so Jesus talked about being good because he's good and he knows they're really good in their hearts. And, and before you know it, Jesus is such a good teacher that everyone got their food out that they were hiding. And the true miracle here is the miracle of sharing. Oh, I'm being sarcastic and condescending. Jesus provides supernaturally. And you need a Jesus who provides supernaturally. As your body right now is hurting and getting worse, in a broken world and your relationships are hurting and sometimes getting worse, you need a supernatural Jesus, not just a good teacher Jesus. By the way, the same commentators are those who say, well, you know, when uh, the people walked across the Red Sea on dry land, uh, we know that back then, we know, wink, no historical support, but we know that it actually wasn't very deep, and so uh, it was just shallow, and they walked across, and that's the true miracle. Well, that's even more interesting, because you have the entire Egyptian army drowning in a foot of water. Um, You tell me which is harder to believe. Um, The point of all this is, pardon the condescension, the point of all this is, my friends, you need a supernatural Jesus. Because you need a Jesus who rises from the dead bodily. Because if you don't have a Jesus who rises from the dead bodily, then you have no hope. That's why Christians believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Meaning, we'll be raised too. We'll be raised too. Let's move on now. Let's move on to number four, a fourth description of Jesus that is true to the historical record, and that is Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Christ. Look what it says in verses 18 to 20. We're getting to the high point here. We're getting to the, to the climactic point. Things are starting to heat up. Look what it says in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Everyone has an opinion, all kinds of opinions. That was our question that we started with. And here's where it gets exciting. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, imagine that. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. I like triple underlined, highlighted that. The Christ of God. And emboldened that. And on purpose, and you should too. The Christ of God? What is he saying? He, he, he's saying he is the Messiah. That's the Old Testament word. New Testament word is Christ. The, the, the deliverer. The anointed one. The ultimate king. The one who brings ultimate freedom. The one who brings everlasting freedom. The one we've been waiting for. He's the, you're, you're that one, Jesus. 
No doubt Peter doesn't even understand altogether the implications of what he's saying based upon what Peter will go on to say and experience. But he gives the right answer. He's the Christ of God. Now, you need to know that there have been other Christs. David, King David was a Christ because Christ means Messiah and Messiah means anointed. All of those Old Testament kings were Messiahs. They they were anointed ones. You affirm the king in a public ceremony and you anoint them in the ceremony. But here, the Christ of God, the one we've been waiting for of Isaiah 51 and other passages, he's the one who's going to bring everlasting Righteousness, fairness. He's the one who's going to bring uh, true and lasting deliverance from persecution and oppression. He's the one who's going to bring everlasting restoration and health. He's, He's the one. He's the Christ of God. Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not just a good teacher. I love the way he says it. The Christ of God. By way of application, let me ask you. If Jesus is the deliverer, the lasting deliverer, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate restorer, if he is the Christ of God, where else do you need to look for your deliverance? You know the answer? Nowhere. Nowhere. Reminds me of the interaction with Jesus and the disciples elsewhere. Do you want to leave? Do you need to look for another deliverer? Another, another Messiah? Where, where else should we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, you're the Messiah. Think about that on a practical level as we, we are, are constantly bombarded in, in all the allurements of, of this kind of deliverer and this kind of deliverer and this kind of deliverer and there's this functional savior and you find fulfillment and peace and restoration and all of these things and some of these things temporally temporarily are fine things but ultimately we rest in Christ because he is the Christ of God And again, you know, there's theology to be learned here, I understand. And if you're thinking, I didn't come here for a theology lesson. Well, this is a church, so it's kind of how we do it. Um, (laughs) The study of God. If you're thinking in terms of what the Old Testament promised and who Jesus claims to be, Christ means so much. You know the old joke, you know, Jesus Christ, I guess Christ is his last name kind of thing. Um, No. If he really is the anointed one, the Christ of God, the the deliverer of God, you should trust him. And what did the Christ of God come to bring? Ultimate total, complete, sufficient restoration spiritually and ultimately physically. That's where I go, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. You know, it's just like, yes. This is, this is it. He's it. He's the one. Let's move on to a, a fifth and final description of Jesus that we can draw from the historical record before us. Sorry if you're taking notes. This is going to be a long one. Um, Verses 21 to 22, I'm going to summarize with a non-kind of summary statement. Jesus is the foreordained, suffering, rejected, killed, resurrected Savior. Did you get that? Yeah. (laughs) For effect, that's why I did it. Jesus is the foreordained, suffering, rejected, killed, resurrected Savior. Jesus is the foreordained, suffering, rejected, killed, resurrected Savior. It's all in the verses. You'll get it there. Let's see just how amazing this is. Look what it says in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He says that at times. Sometimes he says, tell, tell people, tell your family, tell those around you. Sometimes he says, don't tell. Uh, he doesn't want things to go out of hand too soon. It's all according to a perfect plan. 22 says, saying... The Son of Man, we're going to get to that in a moment, but it, it's a messianic title. It's, it's, it, it's a synonym for saying, it's another way of saying, the Christ of God. Now he's just going to use a, a similar uh, uh, but different way of saying the same thing. The Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer. Must is where I got the foreordained idea. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And that's where you go, what? The Christ of God, the Son of Man must suffer? This is where you go, what? This is this is screeching hand, fingernails on the chalkboard. We don't have chalkboards anymore, so only you who are old get it. But I mean, the, the, does not compute. Does not compute. This is where everything crashes, and you go, what? What? This is what the disciples won't get for a while. The Christ of God, the eternal reigning, ruling, restoring perfect, long-awaited Savior, Deliverer, who, as we will see, will rule and reign forever, must suffer? Rejected? Killed? When be resurrected, we get to the good part of the end. Yep. Yep. And we're going to talk about why. Before we do that, I want to at least take a moment to talk about Son of Man. If you'd like to turn to Daniel 7, you can. If you'd like to sit there and take it all in, you can just take it all in. Um, but this is, this is worth a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, and I'm a preacher, and that's what preachers do. So um, I'm going to take a, just a little rabbit trail here to help you understand your Bible better. Um, This is a bit of a sermon spoiler for some sermons maybe you've heard or perhaps preached. Um, This is a little bit of a Sunday school lesson spoiler, um, maybe. It's way, way too simplistic to, to do this. Boys and girls, Son of God emphasizes the deity of Christ. 
Son of man emphasizes the humanity of Christ. It's nice and neat and really easy, but too many times when things are nice and neat and really easy, they actually aren't true, like always and never kind of things. Because in actuality, and by the way, it's true, he's God and he's man. That's true. Son of God, obvious deity. Son of man, if you're thinking, as you hear those words, like someone who knows the Old Testament, which is not something most of us are guilty of, um, if you're thinking like somebody who knows the Old Testament and you see Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a Messiah passage. Ultimate coming, everlasting, deliverer, restorer mess- passage. And that's what's actually in view. So let's go ahead and see this. Don't take my word for it. But in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's little, if any debate, that's exactly where that title comes from. I mean, it's the defining, central, quintessential son of man passage and that it's messianic for sure. That's where it comes from. One like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, the father, and was presented before him, verse 14 says, and to him, the one who's like the son of man, was given, so the ancient of days is giving him, was given dominion, that's kingdom talk, and glory, and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion, that's kingdom talk, is an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In light of the fact that it lasts forever, I could actually make a better argument that it's emphasizing the deity of Christ. But I don't think that's essentially the point either. The point is, if Jesus back in Luke chapter 9 is the Son of Man... He's the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, that Messiah, that King, will rule and reign and it will last how long? Forever. Forever. That's what's going on here. And that's why, that's why it just should shock us like crazy in a good way. Now, we, we don't get shocked because we know how the story ends and we're sophisticated Christians and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But let's just pretend like we're not so that we might be better Christians, even if we're sophisticated. <laughs> You're reading that and you go back in, back in chapter 9. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the everlasting one, must suffer? In answering that question, who do you think Jesus is? I better take that into account. You better take that into account. Jesus is the long-awaited, promised, everlasting King who brings ultimate deliverance but he must suffer and he must be rejected and he must die and he must be raised from the dead. So we're on to understanding who Jesus is. So let's think of it in these terms. Jesus' path to eternal ruling and reigning and bringing restoration eternally for his people is not a path marked without difficulty. Right? Right? The Son of Man must suffer. That's why I said, foreordained, must suffer. Why does it say that? 
It says that because before time began, Ephesians chapter 1, God had a plan to redeem a lost humanity where he would have his son provide atonement for rebellion and he would apply that work by the Spirit. You read about it in Ephesians 1, all three members of the triune Godhead involved. That's before time begins. Or how about later on in the book of Acts, which Luke also records, Peter preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, and it says, talking about God to God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, I'm quoting here, predestined to take place. And it's talking about the crucifixion. Acts 4.28. How about that? So when we read in our passage, the Son of Man must. Yeah, He must. Because there's a plan of redemption. There's a plan of atonement. There is a predestined plan. I know that makes some of us uncomfortable. But we're talking about a God who has a plan and a God who's in control and it wasn't a mistake that His Son was crucified. It was part of His loving, gracious, saving plan of redemption to have His Son, the one who must suffer. I can't help it. I don't know about you, but now I'm thinking of other passages, not just Isaiah 61. I'm thinking of like Isaiah 53. Suffering servant. Pierced for our transgressions. He's the one who not only has to meet the qualifications to be the king, but if, we're, if anybody's going to be in his kingdom, we need atonement. And so he's going to provide atonement also. It's awesome. Who do you think Jesus is? I think he's the great, awesome, ultimate deliverer, savior, who also voluntarily gave himself up for us so that our sins could be atoned for, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be citizens of this lasting, forever, ultimate, amazing kingdom. That's who. But I mentioned earlier, we're not going to go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3 to 6 would be a great passage to look at later. But I mentioned earlier that those healings and those deliverances that surrounded Jesus and his disciples wouldn't last. Now we know why. Because Jesus would have to go to the cross and be crucified. And then, as our passage said, and be raised. Ultimate, lasting, forever health, deliverance, restoration is tied to Jesus' bodily resurrection. By the way, it wouldn't be such a great deal to be healthy forever in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Jesus is going to go to the cross to pay for our rebellion, to atone for our rebellion so we could be reconciled to God. He's going to be raised from the dead. He is called the first fruits because all who believe in Him will be raised from the dead also. And then, my friends, it will last forever. Healing that lasts forever. We get a foretaste in the gospel accounts. We have proof in the gospel accounts from what Jesus does. But you've got to have crucifixion. You've got to have bodily resurrection from, from Jesus for those things to meaningfully last so we can be forever in His lasting kingdom. 
there's a reason why the kingdom message is called good news. My friends, it doesn't get any better. You can try this, that, or the other thing for fulfillment in your life. It's not going to last. But if we're talking about the Christ of God, who didn't just come here and philosophize, he was crucified, he did rise from the dead, and you trust in him for new life and resurrection, to be a citizen of his everlasting, never wearing out, perfectly just, all needs met kingdom? That's good news. That's gospel news. That's Christianity 101. And we see that Jesus is that kind of Savior. I I can't encourage you enough to ask people, thoughtfully, prayerfully, wisely, who do you think Jesus is? Or what are your thoughts about Jesus? I see you have a cross. What do you think about Jesus? I see you pray. I see you don't pray. (laughs) You name it. Opportunities to speak truthfully about Him. And more than likely, 99% of the chance, you're going to be the expert. You don't even have to preach. Just ask Him a question. They'll probably love to tell you who they think Jesus is. And you will love them enough to help them understand who Jesus really is if they need help and understanding. Jesus himself said, who do you say that I am? Peter gave the right answer and according to Matthew's account, he affirms him. This this came to you from God's power. Jesus isn't okay with every answer, but he does ask the question. Father, thank you so much for our, our worship service this morning where we're able to grapple with uh, issues that are more important than anything in the whole world because every single one of us who's here today uh, is a broken person living a broken life and indeed there are great things that we enjoy and there are things that we will no doubt enjoy today but we will also experience yet again what it's like to lead a broken life in a broken world in a broken body and so we're grateful that Jesus is the one who was long ago promised, even back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And we're grateful that He didn't just say He was a good teacher. He didn't just make empty claims. He actually healed people. And He actually raised the dead. And He actually delivered people from their oppression. And He actually voluntarily went to atone for our rebellion against you. And he actually was raised from the dead so that we might have the certainty of eternal life if we're trusting in him for our resurrection. We're grateful for these things. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Of all people, help us not to be prideful and arrogant, but help us to be humble truth speakers who have a love for other people because you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.